This is Lawrence Block, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me this week is not only my special guest co-host, but also my sometimes co-author, Frank Zafiro. Welcome, Frank. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Now, we wrote three novels together, what we call the List series or the Bricks and Cam jobs. But uh, these three novels are about a pair of killers vying for a job with the mafia. And then things get very, very complicated and very bloody very quickly. (laughs) There was the backlist followed by the shortlist and then the getaway list. And let's say that people wanted to check out these books for themselves. Frank, is now a good time to do that? Uh, Now is a very good time, actually, Uh, coincidentally. On the 18th uh, through the 20th of this month, September, uh, these books will be uh, on promotion. Uh, The Backlist, which is uh, the first book, and the Shortlist, the second book, will both be 99 cents. And you can get the Getaway List, the third one, for free. Wow. We are generous. Well, we want to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. And I've noticed after these kinds of promotions that uh, uh, people are pretty generous with their reviews. They come back and not every review is a good one, mind you. That's the way of the world. <laughs> but but most of them are. And uh, reviews help. Reviews help a lot. I don't think readers know quite how much just a quick uh, you know, half a sentence review uh, helps out the writer. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's hard out there with the, the flood of books that drops week after week. So uh, yeah, but I think if you enjoy my writing, if any of you are fans of Frank's writing and you haven't checked out these books you wrote together, there's kind of the best of both worlds in these. I had a blast writing these and we really have gotten some amazing reader feedback. I mean, the people that have found these books are, are, are really into them. And so uh, well done us. What I like about them, Eric, was there's some crossover in the Venn diagram of our writing styles, but there's quite Mm. a lot that's unique to you or or me. And people can explore the character of Bricks, the the woman that I wrote, or Cam, the guy that you wrote, and, and really get a completely different taste of character, not just you know, action and mayhem and, and blood and guts, which, which you contribute a lot to. And, and I hold my own occasionally, uh, but there, you know, there's a fair amount of verbal humor and there's some bittersweet uh, uh, chapters as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you've done a lot of co-writing with some very talented writers. Is there one thing that you look for in a co-author, like one secret skill that you think will make a good partner? I'll sum it up for you like this, Eric, a good partnership in writing is like a good marriage. It's that simple. And that is you both have to be more about the success of the book than about making yourself look good or making yourself come out on top of the of the argument or something like that. And in every case, I've been fortunate that that's been the viewpoint that my partners have had, that the, the book is the important thing. Of course, it helps if the writer's good and, and if they can be half as fast as you and write <laughs> half as clean a copy, that'd make them a pretty good partner too. Uh, but it's all, it's all about being in it together. Well, your solo writing has been very prolific, especially with your ongoing River Cities series, which draws on your years of being a police officer. When you set out to write a police procedural, was there any one thing that you wanted to showcase about police work that you hadn't seen on the page before? I don't know if I hadn't seen it on the page before, but I hadn't seen it very prominently, uh, very often. And that was to show 
the humanity of the police officers. And in fact, I think that's even more important today for, for people to understand that they're not just looking at a badge or a uniform. And, and quite frankly, for the person in the uniform wearing the badge to know that that's not all they are, um, that they're a human being, they're a person, that they're fallible, and that you you just see that the officer is a real person. And too often, you know, the, the police are a very symbolic uh part of our society. And I think people tend to, they see a badge, they see uniform, they see a gun. Uh, they don't necessarily see a person and the public is not necessarily privy to a lot of the things that go on in police work that including why certain things happen or, or why certain attitudes exist. And, and so showing those things from the police perspective and, and, personalizing and humanizing the officers was something I, I really wanted to, uh, to accomplish. Uh, in your time as a cop, do you think you gained an understanding of both your fellow officers and of criminals? Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about it, that's all you spend time with, you know, yeah. at work, you know, I mean, and you, do you get a pretty good insight into your coworkers and, and your clients? Uh, you ask that of anybody in any profession, I mean, and they would probably say, yeah, uh, and so, yeah, I, I picked up a lot from the other cops and, uh, including a few good sayings and, and, uh, <laughs> some, some ticks that, that may, may or may not have found their way into certain books. Yeah. St- stuff you squirrel away for later use. <laughs> exactly. I still have a list of several that, uh, <laughs> I'm wait, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for it to be organic for them to fit in. Uh, but the same is true with cr- the criminal element and, you know, you don't just deal with criminals though. I mean, you, you're dealing with the public and unfortunately you're dealing with, some members of the public who they're not a criminal, but they're, they're probably having one of the worst days of their lives, mm-hmm. you know, we, because otherwise they wouldn't call you something that might happen to them once in their entire life. It's just another day at the office for the cop. Um, and so you're dealing with good people having their worst day ever, uh, good people or otherwise good people making the worst decision they ever made, like a drunk driver, you know, mm-hmm. who's otherwise a decent person, but they made a very bad decision. And then of course, people who are career criminals. And so you, you do, you get some insight to each of those mindsets. And I think it really is something that you can bring to bear in the fiction uh, later on. Well, I also had the pleasure to write an episode in the Grifter Song series, and this was one where you came up with the basics and then you farmed out a few dozen novellas to guest writers, kind of James Patterson style. Was it hard for you to to come up with these characters and then hand them off to other writers to sort of have their way with? No, no, not at all. Because I did, I mean, I created, I created the characters. I wrote the first episode. I handpicked the people and still do handpick the authors, uh, to, to do the episodes. So I don't pick anybody that I would not trust. You know, I don't loan my car to someone who I think will crash it, you know, it's just, <laughs> uh, but there's a fair amount of latitude there too. I mean, there's a Bible, a series Bible that, that, puts the foul lines in place, but as you discovered, they're pretty broad. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about it is, um, you know, like, like for instance, there small spoiler, but in the episode that you wrote, Sam, the, the male half of this grifter team, he gets his leg injured mm-hmm. and, and that's episode, you know, second season episode. And now we're moving into the fourth season. And since that episode, Sam has a bit of a limp doesn't always show up, but I make sure when I get somebody else's episode and they talk about him walking slowly, Hey, we need to add the limp here because Mm -hmm. you know, this is part of the history. So that continuity is something that as the series editor, um, I get, I I get to play with. 
but no, I've been very pleased with with each of the authors that have uh, told their story in their way. And that's kind of the magic of it is that everybody comes at it a little differently. Yeah. Your story was a lot more suspenseful and action driven. Big surprise there for anybody that knows Eric Peter. <laughs> uh, but, you know, awesome. Maria Bradley wrote one with a little bit of a romantic subplot. Um, you know, Holly West's had uh, a lot more of an emotional piece to it uh, in the middle of, of, of her con that was going on. Um, and, you know, so everybody brings their own style to it and it really keeps the series fresh rather than, a, you know, than a uh, paint by numbers, you know, retelling of a slightly different con in a slightly different city every episode. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it's time for my first guest. And this was a special one for me because I got to cross off another country on my guest list here. Uh, so I reached out all the way to Sri Lanka to speak Holy with. Cow. All, yeah. <laughs> and I spoke with author Amanda Jayatissa, whose new novel, My Sweet Girl, it's her mystery debut, though she's been writing for a while now in, in other genres under uh, other names. But this book really showcases the power of strong voice. I really got into this story right away through the first person voice in this book. I, Frank, in your experience, would you say that picking that voice, picking the, you know, the attitude of your main character and, and the way that you're going to deliver that, deciding first person, third person, deciding whether or not you're going to have there be an unreliable narrator or someone you totally trust. Is that end up being really one of the most important decisions you can make when you start into a novel? Well, if it's not the most important decision, it is most certainly right up there yeah. uh, because that, I mean, you, you really, if you think about a book, like you, you're standing behind the reader whispering in their ear for, you know, however many hours it takes them to read the book, you know, that the, you know, that's the voice they're being whispered in, you know, yeah. that's, that's the sound of those whispers. And, uh, that's why first person can be so intimate and, and can really draw people in because it, it feels like it's an even much more private, just you and me talking sort of conversation. Whereas that third person, particularly if you have more than one point of view throughout the book is a little, a little bit more detached. And mm. so, uh, yeah, I think it's an incredibly important choice and it sounds like she made the right one. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on your debut mystery, My Sweet Girl. But of course, you've been writing and publishing for a long time. You've been winning awards for your other work. But is mystery something that was always a goal for you, something you always wanted to write? Yes, very much so. I think growing up in Sri Lanka, there was... Um, a sudden amount of access that you had to books and stories and things like that. So a lot of books that I read when I was younger were actually in Blyton's Famous Five and Secret Seven, uh, which all you know have to do with someone solving some sort of mystery. So I think that's where it this idea got stuck in my mind that a great book should have this mystery element to it. And I tend to naturally gravitate towards books like that. And of course, I've always loved things that are a little dark and a little creepy, you know, and then I stumbled on Gone Girl, I think the same time everyone else did, and was just absolutely mind blown. And I thought to myself, hey, that's, that's the type of book that I want to be writing this idea of women who are nuanced, who are complex, and there's still something there that 
that has to be solved. There's something that keeps you turning the page. So I, I have to say, I, I loved uh, Paloma's voice. Like right, right off the bat, I, I think she just had such a unique voice that I, I was completely engaged in from the very first chapter. So it, it, it did a wonderful job for me, just like really pulling me through the, the mystery of the book. And I, that's got to be the hook, whether you're talking about you know, the, the unreliable narrator or somebody that you're going to be fully on board with. I mean, it really is all about finding that voice that's going to carry you through, you know, 300, 350 pages. Mm-hmm. Did she come to you sort of fully formed? Was it a bit of a, of a journey to, to find that voice for Paloma? It was a interesting journey. So <laughs> I, so I initially was working on a book and when I say working, I mean, I was shaking my fists at the heavens and, and tearing my hair <laughs> out, trying to get this story off the ground. Um, there was just one thing in the story that I liked, which was this plot twist, big reveal moment. But I was trying to write this story and it just, it wasn't working. So I was very, very frustrated. And then I got even more frustrated when I went to my bank and I had this really, really unfortunate kind of encounter there with a customer service representative, which is, uh, you you know what I mean, right? When you, when oh, yeah. I say frustrating experience at the bank, because I think we've all had them. But I yeah. was just so angry um, and absolutely livid inside. But I had to do what all of us have to do in that situation, which is put on this mask and smile so widely that my jaw was starting to hurt <laughs> and um, kind of get through that. And then I did what I think most writers would do in that situation is I escaped away to my favorite coffee shop and I pulled out a notebook and and I started rage writing. I started writing down all these ungracious, um, uncharitable thoughts that were in my mind. And I think it was one of the first times that I really gave myself permission to do that. Because as women, especially, I think we're so socialized into thinking we mustn't be a certain way. We must present ourselves in a certain way. And so I started writing all of these. I just gave myself permission to let go. And I did. And I was having such a great time. And that's kind of where this mean girl, um, sassy, salty voice uh, was born. And I was like, wow, I'm having such a blast writing this. This needs to be the voice of my main character. Then I took that old story that wasn't working and I gutted it out completely and just took the bones of what I really liked, which was this plot twist element and, you know, changed up the setting and added in Paloma and suddenly everything seemed to fit. Wow. Amazing. Well, that, that great advice for new writers. Rage writing is a great place to start, apparently. <laughs> we, we sometimes call it free writing. It's a little bit more... Um, <laughs> palatable, I guess. <laughs> no, no, I like rage writing. <laughs> like, that's much better. <laughs> well, My Sweet Girl is set in San Francisco, but also has links back to Sri Lanka. I, much like yourself, you have lived in Northern California. Now you're back in Sri Lanka. I assume, I'm going to hope anyway, that the settings uh, are the only things that uh, you come from your own life. But now, as you just revealed, I mean, that the situation you described is basically the first chapter of the book is this <laughs> encounter with customer service. I, I worry now that you've had a terrible roommate in your past somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my roommates are lovely. Um, no one's wound up, you know, in my life at least, no one's wound up, um, you know, in a pool of blood yet. But um, yeah, <laughs> 
No, um, the, the situations, of course, the settings are grounded very much in um, where I have lived and a lot of the experiences that I've had in the past. So um, the Bay Area just seemed logical to me. I'd spent four years there, went to college there. And of course, um, I loved bringing in a Sri Lankan element because I just feel like Sri Lanka hasn't been written about often enough. No. It was, you know, really interesting and fun to bring in elements of my childhood, like the ghost stories or the interactions between the girls um, in the orphanage were very similar to some of the interactions that I had with my friends here. So it was um, a lot of fun bringing in these personal experiences into my writing. Well, Paloma in the book is hiding a big secret, uh, and then Arun comes in and turns her whole life upside down, which is the best kind of thriller story. It's, uh, th these, these are the kind of stories that my my wife is the hugest fan. Like uh, when I'm picking a book to suggest to her or a movie, she's sh her favorite thing. Another thing I always know is going to hook her is like, Stranger comes in and ruins your life. Oh, you're going <laughs> to love this book. <laughs> so. I, I, as a writer, I mean, what what do you enjoy about turning the screws on your characters like this? I mean, it's in a way when we write these people, we have to put them through such horrible things. Do you ever? I mean, should we feel awful about the things that we do to these characters? Well, it helps if your characters are kind of mean too, because then you don't have to feel as well. bad doing it. <laughs> um, no, it's always interesting because I think I am the kind of person that takes. It goes to great lengths to ensure that my life is relatively stress-free. And here I am, you know, throwing things, uh, like throwing stress and throwing tension at my characters and like saying like, how would you deal with this scenario? Um, which I guess, yeah, makes me really mean-spirited, but hey, it has to be done. With Paloma, it was very interesting because I think women in her position are often taught to second-guess themselves. And we see that a lot where women are often told, you know, or you're just being emotional or you're being air quotes crazy or you, you shouldn't have confidence in what you saw and what you experienced. I mean, Paloma's ability to accept that even about herself was really telling. And, you know, I think as women, we do that all the time where we second guess ourselves. And it was an interesting kind of element to throw in there. I have read uh, a handful of novels from India, but I've never read a Sri Lankan novel. Is there a rich history there that we're missing in America? Is, is there a, a great literary foundation in Sri Lanka that we should be aware of? There are amazing books written in Sinhalese that we all sort of grew up reading. There's a lot of very good literary fiction as well, I think, that comes out of Sri Lanka. There is a great emergence now of genre fiction writers, especially science fiction writers, um, coming out of Sri Lanka, which is amazing. Yudanje uh, Vijayaratna, Navin Viratna, they're amazing um, science fiction writers, and that's great. There are a lot of Sri Lankan writers there. Let's put it that way. And I can keep gushing about them. <laughs> um, yeah. But it is... I feel like almost untapped. It's definitely there if anyone were interested. Oh, great. I, I mean, I think this is going to be, uh, for a lot of readers, especially in America, this really will be their first exposure to a story even set there. So yeah, hopefully this opens the door to some new discoveries. Well, I, I saw something that you said in an interview and, and I knew instantly that I was a fan of yours. 
Uh, you said that a big part of your writing process often involves just sitting on a couch and thinking. <laughs> I, I want to know how, how do we explain to the non-writers in our lives that yes, that is, I, I'm writing right now. Even if I'm just, I look like I'm staring into space. This is part of the writing process. Like it's not a nap. It is my creative process. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's so it's so hilarious because I have this couch um in my office and I lay on it all the time. And my husband comes in and he's like, "Are you taking a nap?" And I'm like, "No, don't disturb me." You know, it's like, "Don't disturb my genius." Um, <laughs> it's for me a very very necessary part. It, usually, what happens to me is I get this spark of a story, an idea. And then I sit with it um, and I think about it and I write various outlines and things, but very loosely. And I just, I sit with it till it makes sense. And I feel that I'm in a place where I'm ready to dip my toes in. So I have these yeah. pages and pages of um, not rage writing if it's not Paloma, more free writing. <laughs> um, but I do have pages and pages that don't ever really make it into um, the final story, but really helps me get a sense of what their fears are and what their anxieties are and what they want. So I feel like I really, really know my character before I jump in and start telling the story. Yeah. All right. Well, before I let you go, uh, I want to get to perhaps the, the most important point of all I've, I've saved here for the end. And that is that, you, I'm sorry, you own a cookie store? Is this right? <laughs> yes, with my husband. He's the real cookie genius. Um, okay. I am mostly the chief taste tester, which is a pretty sweet gig, you know. But uh, no, we started it many years ago together. We were making the dough in our kitchen. Uh, we just thought it would be a fun hobby or a fun thing to do you know my husband's a, he's just fantastic in the kitchen so we thought you know hey let's put it to use um we just never envisioned that it would grow into you know sort of what it has today which is um which has been a really wild ride, actually. Um, and it's kind of fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, my, my wife, uh, when she left her retail job, she went to study to be a pastry chef. And it was it, it's, it was one of the greatest decisions that she ever made. <laughs> yeah, for you too. Exactly, for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Well, it, it looks like we, we both married well. So congratulations, us. <laughs> Well, next up, I talked with the two women behind the wildly popular, award-winning true crime podcast, Red Handed. Saruti Bala and Hannah McGuire have turned that podcast of all things criminal into a book, which is also called Red Handed, subtitled An Exploration of Criminals, Cannibals, Cults, and What Makes a Killer Tick. Uh, I mean, that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about the book right there. <laughs> Now, Frank, I, I know uh, you, you're you not a huge true crime guy because, as you once described to me, for you, uh, with your experience in law enforcement, it was a bit of a busman's holiday because you, you're like, yeah, whatever. I, I lived it. But you made the choice to follow me very foolishly down the dark alley into interviewing authors on a podcast. Did you ever consider doing some sort of different format to play into how popular true crime is? Like, you know, maybe someone with your police background, you know, just get a bunch of retired cops together and swap war stories? Well, now I was about to answer no, uh, because I just don't think I'm, I'm super interested in uh, that sort of a podcast. But when you you talk about getting a bunch of people together and swapping <laughs> war stories, now there's a potentially good podcast, you know? There you go. Um, yeah. um, and the one you're talking about here actually kind of 
piqued my interest a little bit. Uh, great alliteration and sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Yeah, Red Handed is it's a fascinating podcast uh, because they, they really do endeavor to dig into the whys behind these crimes. It's not just, you know, this gawking and driving by at the crime scene. They really want to get to the core of what makes someone turn into a killer or any of these horrible things. And believe me, they, you know, I, when I was dipping in, I was looking at some of the crimes that they cover. I mean, they cover some dark, dark stuff. There was one about a guy in London who <laughs> It turned out it had a long history of necrophilia. <laughs> I, I, I now know more about the necrophiliac than I ever wanted to know in my uh, life. <laughs> I, I unfortunately learned more about that topic and other sexual fetishes uh, while studying for uh, for the detective test. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. It was <laughs> it was pretty gross at times. Anna, are you, are you in an actual office? Yes. Does this yes. happen anymore? I've been working yes. from home for two years now. I, I literally hate working from home so much. Really? That the, the second it was legal, I was like, we're getting an office, guys. I can't hack this shit anymore. Because it's our own business and because it is so, like, the nature of it is so nonstop. I find it, if I'm working at home, I find it impossible to stop. Aha. And I still find it very difficult to stop, but it's easier if I can leave my laptop physically locked in a room where I don't live. Yeah, that, that's been the, the trouble with working from home is like, there's no more excuses of like, well, I'll handle that tomorrow. Cause like, oh, I guess I can just pop down to my office. What is tomorrow? Now yeah. it's tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So we're very happy for the office. And I actually just moved into my new um, place this weekend. So I'm unboxing, but I will be back in the office as well. So this is a full-time pursuit now for you. Yeah, it has been for years now. Full time and three employees. So there's five of us now. So oh yeah. my gosh. Right out of the gate, you guys are smarter than I am because true crime is the place to be in the podcasting world. And was it as big of a thing when you started, especially in the UK? Or, or was your timing perfect and you got in right as the wave was about to crest? Good question. I think in terms of podcasting in general, the UK is about five years behind the US anyway. Oh, wow. In terms of... British true crime shows, when we started, there were probably about three that anyone had sort of like heard of. Um, so yes, I think we did somehow manage to get in on the ground floor. However, it didn't feel like that at the time. Like when we started, the huge shows like You're My Favorite Murders and the last podcast on the left as well, like we're never going to ever be close. And now our Patreon's almost as big as last podcast on the left four years later. That's amazing. And multiple award winners, you should yeah. say. And, and I've, wow. I've, I've, I've loved the progression because it was like, well, maybe someday we'll win an award. Oh my gosh, we got a silver. Well, we can probably never, but oh, it's a gold. <laughs> <laughs> no, it has been remarkable growth. It's something that was, none of this was deliberate. I think it's, it's similar to the question you asked first, actually, about did we know what we were doing? Absolutely not. We were just... <laughs> enjoying true crime podcasts, minding our own business. And then we decided that we would just start one and uh, very low barriers to entry, bought a 10 pound microphone, thought what's the worst that can happen? Maybe everyone will hate what we say and we just never ever talk about this again. But it, it seemed to take off. And yeah, now we we have a gold award from the listener's choice at the British Podcast Awards, which is crazy. And now, I mean, tell me a little bit about how you made that decision. I mean, because you would expect the, you know, listening to your show, it, it, you go into a lot of detail. There's obviously a a ton of research involved, but you don't have a background in journalism. You're not, you know, you didn't go to university for historical research or anything like that. This is just a, a hobby that's become a, a business, right? 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and you guys met sort of accidentally. Yes, we met at a party almost five years ago now. It was a complete sliding doors moment. Like Saru wasn't sure if she was gonna come. I didn't really want her to come because I was like, who is this bitch I'm gonna have to cook for? And then <laughs> she did show up and we got on so well. Uh, and it felt like what I imagine meeting the love of your life feels like. It was just like this instant thing. And we were talking about podcasts and no one was listening to podcasts back then in the UK, let alone the like very niche murder podcasts that we were both listening to. Um, so then we drank quite a lot of wine and started talking really loudly about John Benet Ramsey over dinner. They were children there. <laughs> and we just thought that was fine. And then we decided after that that we would actually see each other again. So we always say to everyone who makes friends in bars and toilets that you should actually hang out because you never know. And then we decided that we would start the show and then we did. I'm very grateful for the fact we weren't friends before because uh, we've got to know each other through the show. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes our working relationship easier. We are very different, but there are certain things that we are very similar. One of which is like masochistic work ethic. (laughs) We just got lucky that we work in a similar way and we don't quit. And I think if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be here where we are. Your award-winning podcast now has a companion book uh, and since my podcast is all about books, let's turn to that. Uh, I, I assume that the appeal of of being able to do a book was maybe to take a, a bit of a deeper dive into some of these stories and, and to get a kind of a wider view of these criminals and killers that, that you talk about. Is it Was that the, the impetus behind uh, putting together a book? I would love to say... Eric, that it was that grand a plan (laughs) when we got the book off. I would say that the main catalyst behind writing this book was COVID and it was lockdown. Mm. A lot of the other things that we had on the radar, on the agenda, like live events, they went out of the window. They were just not going to be a reality for who knew how long. So we thought, you know, maybe this is the time to consolidate everything that we have learned over the past four years, write it all down and turn it into a book. And that makes it sound like we already knew everything that's in this book. Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. It was just a framework that we had come up with. And um, that really was born out of the idea that the most common question that we get asked is um, what makes a killer tick? What makes a killer kill? Um, And obviously, as many people ask you that question, have their own opinion on that. And we would never be so arrogant as to say we know the answer to that because I don't think there is one. But the thing that we did realize is that whatever it is, it isn't this idea that people are just monsters. It's this idea that something um, drove this person to kill. And it's usually something that's a very human experience is made that person become a killer. We needed to stop otherizing killers and saying that they're monsters and we had nothing to do with their development or um, taking a real look into where they had come from. So what we did is we actually picked eight different topics that we thought influenced a killer more than anything else. And then we started to work chapter by chapter. And that was really the way in which this book was born. And so much of the research that went into this was stuff that we discovered as we were writing the book. It was not anything we'd even learnt in the eight, in the four years of doing the podcast previously. So it was a real journey of discovery, just like the podcast is for us. Yeah, because it's not just a rehashing of famous cases or, or things like that. I mean, you really, you guys really are trying to dig into the the mind of these criminals and and, and understand them, and, and 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 then allow us to understand them. Yeah, totally. We sort of, whenever we do live shows, for example, we have a rule that like there has to be a reason 
for someone to have paid 40 quid and left the house to come and see it where there has to be something different about it that they couldn't get from just listening to the podcast we felt very similarly about the book because we could have done a collection of stories that we'd already covered on the show we absolutely could have done that and we probably would have lost less hair if we had done that (laughs) but what we like to do at Red Handed often is contribute to the narrative. And that's what we felt was important with the book. And that's why we looked at it from like a developmental issues and stages in development perspective rather than a collection of stories. But as you said, I mean, understanding a killer or a criminal, it's it's different than excusing their behavior, right? I mean, you're, you're not trying to be apologists for these people. They've done horrific no, no. things. Absolutely. I think that is the challenge, isn't it? And I think too often when there isn't a simple answer, uh, this is just human nature. We want to just say, well, they're, they're, they're monsters, they're evil, they're horrific. And of course, the things that they have done are evil and horrific and monstrous, but they are just people. So it is what made that person do it. Mm. And I think one of the things that united Hannah and I quite early on, and probably all of our listeners, is that we're just fascinated by the extremes of human behavior. I think that's all that true crime is. It isn't this, uh, a lot of people want to stigmatize it. It's this grisly, weird, macabre entertainment. But no, it's a fascinating with the extremes of human behavior. It's the same reason we're obsessed with watching something like Free Solo or watching something like Botched. It's the Mm -hmm. same reason. It's the extremes that these people are willing to go to or driven to go to. And so absolutely, the book is no apologist for killers. um, But what it is, is trying to look at the very human factors, be it chapter one on genetics, chapter two on childhood, a chapter on sex, a chapter on relationships. These are things that fundamentally shape all of us, Hmm. but it is the perversion of those human things that have shaped a killer. Well, and whatever it is that you've tapped into, uh, you've you've made a direct line to my wife's brain and and now my older (laughs) daughter too, because they have become true crime podcast junkies during lockdown. And there's something about a show like yours where it is two people who are obviously friends and obviously close, and it's not just delivering it in in a dry fashion, but it is, as you say, like you can hear the discovery between you two as as you talk about these cases, and and it, it's, it is it's kind of like talking to two people in the corner at a cocktail party and finding this common thing, and then hey, tell me a great story. I, I wonder how hard it was to translate that sort of vibe onto the pages of a book uh yeah i mean it was tricky for sure but when we really cracked it is when we started to work as a team the Mm. whole way through that i mean that's when we always do our best work full stop because as true crime writers and we are right us the red-handed is pretty scripted like um so we're used to storytelling in a way that is difficult to circumvent because it's true it happened right so like it, the, the narrative arc was already there with the book it was trickier to figure out how to make that flow as an argument rather than a story and once we looked at it from that perspective it all sort of came together along the way you certainly have to have chosen a few favorite cases are, are there are there a few that uh, that pop out that you're, are sentimental favorites and do you are they the same for both of you I think the thing that we're really, both of us probably are enjoying a lot at the moment is tackling some of these bigger, more geopolitical uh, true crime cases. And, uh, you know, I think we talk about this all the time and it's the kind of starting off with the real micro cases where it's like the, um, the, the familial sides, the, the, 
family annihilator cases, the domestic murders, um, all the way up to the grand scale ones. So recently we've discovered a real passion for that. We started off doing the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, who was the journalist who was killed um, Mm. in Istanbul. Then we started, we did one on um, the warlord of Liberia. And then recently the one that I'd say is now probably in top position for me as favorite is um, just a couple of weeks ago, we did the case of Shamima Begum, who was a London schoolgirl who ran off to join ISIS and um, we did a two-parter on that where we did a real deep dive into who ISIS are what they want their motivations we talk about Al-Qaeda we talk about what's going on in Afghanistan talk about Shamima Begum why she was how she was radicalized in her bedroom in East London like literally you know maybe a few miles from where I'm sat right now how did this happen a girl who had never even left the country it's a tricky one because people have very very polarizing views on this but we thought this is the kind of conversation we want to be having. We don't just want to be talking about Ted Bundy for the 50 millionth time. Right. These are, you know, these are the crimes of our time. These are the cases of our time and they they fit with our kind of political agenda, so to speak. So we're really enjoying doing those, I think, at the moment. Well, now, are you two forever screwed at a dinner party now? Because anywhere you go, people are going to pull you into the corner and and tell you about that little crime from their hometown that you have to cover. And I mean, is it, are, are, yeah. you, are you doomed now? I mean, I don't know whether it's doomed, but it, I mean, yes, that does happen. And <laughs> and sometimes they'll, they'll say like, I mean, obviously there's no such thing as a boring murder, but there are such things as boring murders. Um, and they'll, they'll t- tell you one of those, but more often than not, they're like, oh, so you you do a podcast. What's your day job? And we're like, no, it's, it's my job. And they're like, oh, really? So you don't work at, no, no, it, it is my job. And that's, that's what I do all the time. No one believes it. No one believes it. I find it hard to believe because I still haven't made a dime. <laughs> what, what am I doing wrong? Okay. Oh, that's right. I'm talking about books. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to switch it to murder and then you're, you'll be raking in the dough. <laughs> now, is there any risk whatsoever having already done it for a while and, and then looking at a long future? Are you ever going to run out of crimes or is human misery and, and evil a never ending pool to, to draw from? I mean, it kind of is like people aren't going to stop killing each other. They're just not. Yeah. People yeah. are pretty, pretty all round bad. People love it. People love killing each other. And you're destined to find out why they love it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, all right, time for some book reviews. And for that, I turn to our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. But before we go to them, Frank, you have uh, anything you want to recommend to people? Initially, I would want to recommend any one of the co-authors that I've worked with, uh, including you, you know, Colin Conway, Lawrence Kelter, uh, Bonnie Paulson, or Jim Wilski. But that would be like saying, yeah, my brother wrote a great book. You should read it. You know, Everybody's going to go, yeah, okay, fine. That's a true recommendation. So I will make a real recommendation. I'm actually still reading this book, but it's uh, by a, a guy who's a former cop named Mark Bergen, B-E-R-G-I-N. And Mark Bergen wrote a book called Apprehension, which kind of has a double meaning, obviously, you know, like anxiety and concern uh, and also arresting someone. It's set in Alexandria, where, where he was a cop, in 1988. And it follows two or three storylines at once including a detective named John Kelly but what if you like the nitty-gritty of procedural stuff 
the fun stuff, not the boring stuff, <laughs> which isn't as easy to figure out when you've been a cop, though, which is which. Uh, Mark just nails it. He just nails it. And, uh, you know, I'm not an easy guy to, to get an eyebrow raise out of. I usually see things coming, and he threw a couple of curveballs in there that I was genuinely surprised at. So uh, I can heartily recommend it. Mark Bergen, Apprehension. Excellent. All right. Well, let's see what Dan and Kate have to recommend. Oh, Dan and Kate Malman, it's so good to see you. And I hear that you have two books that I'm very interested in because these are two books that I have uh, heard about, have not yet read myself. So I'm excited to hear your take on them. All right. Well, Kate, let's start with you. Uh, You read Burying the Newspaper Man by Curtis Ippolito. Yes. If, If I'm pronouncing that right, I honestly have no idea. I defer to you as the host. <laughs> Curtis, hit us up on the Twitter and tell us if we got it right or wrong. Exactly. Yes, please, Curtis. <laughs> so this is his debut novel. He kind of comes out of the gate, or he not kind of, he does come out of the gate swinging with the topic. It starts out with a beat cop in uh, Ocean Beach, California, running plates on car, missing cars, finds one, opens up the trunk, and there's a dead body. Hmm. Dead body also happens to be the body of a man who abused him as a child. Oh. So it puts this police officer in this moral dilemma of, this is a man that did terrible things to me. Do I do everything I can to let help the killer go free? Or do I do work to bring the killer to justice because this is what I've sworn an oath to do? But when I say he comes out of the gate swinging, it's not just that the, the man abused the, the main character, Marcus. He sexually abused him it really hits because you're like, this is not something that people usually write about, especially when it's, it's male on male. Mm -hmm. And you usually don't hear about it or usually don't see a man writing about it. Mm -hmm. So I give Curtis a ton of credit for taking this huge risk in a top in, in a very sensitive topic. And he does an amazing job handling it. And he, he handles it very well where you get the impact of what happened without it being gratuitous. Mm, that's good. Um, so I, I think he did a really a fantastic job, especially as for his debut novel of finding that balance of explaining what happened without really giving too much. Yeah. And you find out that Marcus is this, like the main character is the super layered character where he's, he's dealing with what happened to him as a child. He's trying to figure out how to maintain relationships with women. He's taking care of his mom who's in hospice, trying to be a good cop. So it's it's a really good character study of of Marcus and and everything that go, that happens to him. And then it Curtis works in a really great twist as to who was responsible for the murder of of the abuser. So it oh. it it took a great turn that I did not see coming. Um, and I give I give Curtis a ton of credit for his his first novel, and I can't wait to see what else he writes. Excellent. All right, that you you sold me. I, this was definitely one that I've been paying attention to and had mm-hmm. not pulled the, had had not pulled the trigger yet on this one. But that's uh, that's definitely a, a must buy for me. Yeah, do it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Dan, you are into the brand new Richard Cadre novel, and I know you are already a big big fan. Yes, um, I've been a Sandman Slim guy for a long, long time. This was a book that you know when when a buddy's like, check this out. <laughs> and somebody gave me Sandman Slim and I've been in almost since the beginning. So King Bullet is the finale of this long time ongoing series, the 12th book. Oh, wow. Which I'm for novels. Actually, I shy away from a lot of long running series because yeah, as a 
compulsive guy, I need to start at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, you know, and know what's going on. So it's, there's a lot of stuff in the crime field that has been long running that I haven't read. Um, uh, but when you get on the ground floor, you need the next dose. So Sandman Slim is, it's my favorite urban fantasy. So it's, it's all about, um, a guy named James Stark. He lives in, in LA. He's tied in with the, the magical underground community. Um, and it, during the course of this series, he's been sent to hell by people he thought were his friends. He's fought in the, the Coliseum in hell. He ended up taking over. He's come back. He's gone back to hell. He's come back to earth again. All sorts of things that are the craziest sounding things you've ever heard of. But <laughs> Kadri has this laid back, deceptively simple style mixed in with wisecracks and obscure movie references and this and that and the other. And you're like, this is great. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting book on multiple levels since it is the finale. There's a ton of stuff to wrap up. Yeah. It's also the first thing that I've read that takes place during a pandemic. Oh. So he made the choice where the book opens and Los Angeles is in the midst of a pandemic. It's, it's not labeled as COVID. We okay. don't know if it's magical in nature or scientific, but everybody's forced to wear masks. It's weighing on everybody emotionally the same way that it is in real life. So Stark is is going around town, checking on his friends. You know, um, are you doing all right? You need anything? People bothering you? And his other buddies are like, where's your mask? And he's like, oh, God damn it. And <laughs> so one of his friends gives him a She-Ra mask, you know, Princess <laughs> of Power. Yes. And it's a great ongoing gag because that's for the biggest toughest guy all around town he's like yeah i'm wearing my mask and if you talk about my she-ra mask i'll kick your ass (laughs) and it's just just done up with a big bow and uh if i ever find my own she-ra mask i'm wearing it (laughs) well 12 uh, novels that's i mean that's a good satisfying run so like if if you're into that series that you can't be too too sad that it's over and it, no, sounds, it sounds like you, 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 there's nothing worse than an unsatisfying ending. So it just sounds like he gave you a satisfying ending. Yes. Yes. And they all look so great on your shelf. Cause I, <laughs> I mean, the, these editions are all like a little bit uniquely sized. So they stand out and the cover art is done up. They've gone through a couple different editions, but now they're done as, as horror po- um, posters, homages. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just, it's just such a satisfying read and a great looking package so good stuff all right guys well it's great to see you as always and uh come hell or high water i will see you in person next year at BoucherCon. so that's awesome yes we want you to come even if the event doesn't if it's uh three years in a row um yeah. still come <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, all right, Frank, in this episode, I am really getting around, and this was completely unintentional, but I talked to Sri Lanka, I've been to London, and now we go to Sweden. Tuve Alsterdal is a huge bestseller and award winner in her native Sweden, and now U.S. readers get to experience her writing with her award-winning novel, We Know You Remember. It has all the elements that lovers of Scandinavian crime are going to love, and I think this is going to really make a big splash here in the States. Frank, did you ever uh, get into that Nordic noir novels like so many American readers? 
Uh, only dip my toe in a little bit. Um, I do like how dark they are. I, I dig that. They've got the darkness down. But I guess when you get the winters that they get, it's uh, not <laughs> difficult to get get particularly dark. Um, I'd be curious to find out, uh, and I don't know if you cover it in the interview or not, if she writes in English or if they end up translating from the Sweden, uh, the, the, the Swedish that she writes in. Yeah, I've, you know, everyone I've talked to, both the Swedish authors and I talked to a couple of Icelandic authors, they all write in their native tongue and get translators. And everyone that I've spoken with uh, speaks impeccable English. And you would you would think you, you, that they would have mastery enough to, to do that. But I think the overarching uh, answer to that has always been that when you're in the flow of it, and we all know what this is like when you're just sort of typing and letting the characters sort of speak through you in that sort of writerly way, to do that and not have to be translating in your head, it's so much easier to write in your native tongue rather than sort of go through this extra process in your brain. And so they can they can leave it to the translator after the fact, but the good news is they can all read their translations back and make sure there's no errors. Because I've talked to other authors who've been translated into other languages that they can't read and they get a copy of the book and they're like, I'm sure it's fine, I can't read Japanese, so good luck to you. <laughs> You are one of those writers who America is just discovering now, and yet you have been a huge hit already in your home country of Sweden. And this very book, we know you remember, was uh, named Best Swedish Crime Novel of the Year. Congratulations. We're, we're just catching up to your brilliance here. <laughs> was was uh, breaking uh, in America always, uh, always a goal for viewers? I mean, of course, everyone wants to, but uh, I like never really imagine that it would happen. It's not like, uh, I mean, you hope it will, but I mean, I'm happy that people read me in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I think it's fantastic when I meet someone in the street and say, oh, I read your book. I mean, so <laughs> going to America is like a bit more than I dreamt of. Well, now that you have uh, a, an international readership, does it change at all the the stories that you might tell going forward? Is there any any difference in 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 thinking about a global audience? No, it's not. And actually, I've been translated into several la other languages, like French and Germany, and so on. So no, I never think about that. I mean, the story is the story that I want to write, and I'm so happy if other people want to read it in other countries. But I never change anything. Well, I think that's a great thing about crime fiction is that it's one of the most easily translated worldwide because when you're getting down to those stories of someone in a pressure situation or someone having the worst day of their life or just dealing with the emotions of uh, you know a tragic death or something, that translates into any culture, doesn't it? Yes, and I, I also I love to read crime fiction from places where I've never been. I love like the I Iceland or Shetland Islands or South Africa or somewhere. I think it's a yeah. great way to get into another culture because it's as you say, it's very easy to read. You immediately get there and you are there and the tension and everything is there. And at the same time, you get to like discover a new place. I think that's one of the best things. So when you're a young writer growing up in Sweden. What kind of books are you reading that get you inspired to do this? Are you reading mostly other Swedish authors? Do you get a lot of translations? Are you reading, you know, Agatha Christie like the rest of the world? Yeah, I read Agatha Christie like the rest of the world. We had some Swedish similarities, uh, but I love like John Le Carré mm. and uh, like American British authors. And I, 
actually we when growing up I read mostly like novels and that could be like anything I mean I think one of the most inspiring novelists is Joyce Carol Oates yeah and I get much more inspiration from that actually than reading crime fiction because it improves my language it's like widen can widen my own writing in another way well, in the new book, we know you remember, we meet Olaf, who has, uh, he's got troubles outgrowing his past, I guess you could say. <laughs> and uh, even though the crimes he was accused of are, are decades in, in, in the past, when his own father turns up dead on the same day that he returns to town, the accusations fly. And what you set up here is you, you have basically you have to solve two crimes in this book, the crime from the past and the crime from the present. Uh, and I wonder, like, as you were plotting this book out, did you have both solutions already uh, in your head or did one solution uh, inform the other? I didn't, I didn't have any of them, I think. <laughs> I started out with this problem and I always have an idea what the solution could be. But I almost always change that because the first thought of a solution is always very often too simple. And then when I get into it and start writing and I find out, well, this could be more complex than I first thought. So I think it changed quite a bit while writing it. And is that something that you have discovered in, in all of your work? You you get there and you, you, you start with sort of a vague idea of where you're going, but then it's it always helps to add another twist or another complication yeah. in there. Yeah, I think actually in all of my books, someone has survived that I thought would be dead and <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> I killed someone that I thought should survive. Yeah, that almost always happens. Well, since most English-speaking readers, uh, this will probably be their, their first exposure to your work. Do you think uh, this new book is indicative of, of what your style is? Is this uh, the kind of thing that when the rest of your books get translated over here, we can expect a, a similar style? Yes and no. All, all my previous novels have been totally standalones and they take place in different parts of the world, actually, in Sweden, but also they also go like to Latin America and to uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union and so on in rather complex uh, stories that is also based on uh, real events. Mm. Uh, so this book is actually rather different and it's the first time that I write a series. I haven't done that before. And it's also totally set in Sweden because mm -hmm. I really wanted to write this landscape or Dalen or the high coast. It's a very special landscape, a very special part of Sweden that I, it's the, like the woodland and a former industrial area where the industries now are gone. They're just like remains in the souls of the people and like in the nature, you can find the remains of those sawmills that once were there. And now it's a rather poor region. I really wanted to write that region. So I decided to put everything in Sweden and in that part of, of the country and uh, also do a series because I found it. So it wasn't, I wasn't finished when I realized that when I started to write that oh. <laughs> it has to be a series. <laughs> Well, I, I think at this point, most of what Americans know about Sweden probably comes from crime stories. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we aren't that brutal in real life, you know. <laughs> we're very kind in real life. Are we we're getting a very twisted view of life in Sweden, or are we getting a little bit of the real thing? Uh, I think, well, talking about my own novel, you get quite a bit of the real thing. But of course, I mean, it's a crime novel, so it's... 
it's maybe not everyday life. Uh, <laughs> and some of some of the Scandinavian crime authors are like very violent. I'm not. I'm like more interested in the characters and the story and so on than, you know, it's not a lot of blood in my books, but in some of the Swedish crime stories, there are, I suppose you're familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Sweden is also a country that I think uh, our, the American view might be that it's it's a little bit homogenous. It's, it's kind of the same wherever you go. I mean, you are down in Malmo, which is, you know, very far in the south. You're literally right across the bridge from Europe. I mean, is is there a big difference between you know, the North and the South, the East Coast and the West Coast? So there, yes, there's a lot of different yes. places to write about? Yes, it's very different, I think. I mean, in a way we are, I mean, we are all Swedes and there are lots of things that we have in common, of course, but it's also very different. I mean, I'm from everywhere in Sweden. I was born in Malmö, as you say, but I live in Stockholm now. And I have my country house in this part that I write about mm. in the north. And my mother is from even further up north, near close to the Finnish border that was former Russia. Oh, wow. And uh, where actually we have other languages and other like minorities and the Sami people and everything. So it's really different when you dig into it, I think. And I also wanted to write about, you know, the countryside, the way of living in the countryside, where as my fam- part of my family is from there up north, it's also that you have those long memories. I mean, mm. you don't just have your own memory. You have the memories from your parents and your grandparents and back to like the 16th century. In the case of my family, they always talk about those, you know, family stories. So you carry around that very, very deep memory. And that's a huge difference to grow up in the city. Well, and I, th- I think it enters interestingly into this story because you are dealing with uh, these echoes of the past, a fairly recent past, but still, you know, a couple of decades ago. And and the fact that I think that there is this sort of unsolved crime at, at the core of it, maybe that wouldn't happen in a big city. There'd be more, uh, more resources to throw at it. But now you've got this police inspector who has to dig in a little bit to to what happened in, in this thing that everyone still, like you say, has these memories of and is yeah. treating treating Olaf very uh, differently because of these memories. Yeah. And uh, she herself, the my main character, she was a child when those events oh. occurred. She was nine years old and she has memories, but she can't trust her memories. And neither can he. He was 14 years old and lots yeah. of people told him what had happened. So what is true and what is not. And it's, it's also a book about memory and oblivion, you know, that mm. do we remember and can we trust our memories? And is it true just because we remember it or could it be the opposite? I think that's very interesting topics for a crime novel. Yeah. All right. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for joining me today and also thank you for being a friend, a co-writer, a good person to call and complain when this business gets you down. <laughs> Let's remind people again, the backlist and the shortlist are available for cheap right now for a very limited time. And the getaway list is free. So check out those first two and read the third one on us. Uh, we are just we are too nice, Frank. Yeah, but you know, what do you, what do we want but to be read, right? That's the key. True. And, and I really would, uh, I want as many people. This is one of those series that uh, I, I just think deserves such a huge audience. So I think we caught a little, uh, little lightning in a bottle. And if people can 
can share that for free and cheap, then, uh, you know, the world's a better place. Yes. Well, we will write more together someday when our schedules line up again. But uh, Frank, uh, your solo novels are always one that I can recommend without reservation. Uh, you guys should also, obviously, if you're listening to this, you are a podcast listener. You should check out Frank's podcast, Wrong Place, Right Crime. Right is W-R-I-T-E because he's so clever. Actually, my wife is the clever one. <laughs> oh, the, well, that happens quite often, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of my best ideas came from her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always find Writer Types on Twitter at Writer Types and go grab those list books for cheap. I'll be back real soon with more great authors, more co-hosts. And uh, until then, thanks for listening.